I'll start with this. I want you to know that on the computer, I got down here early to make sure all this works. I have various slides that cover things we've talked about. I have the one that covers Berea, because last week I talked about the Bereans searching the scriptures and what was noble was noble-minded. At least they looked to see if it's true. And I promised that we'd be starting here, but there's a little review, so let me start the slideshow. It works. Now we're going to do a little review, and then we'll hit this Acts 18, 1 through 4. And the review is from Athens. He goes uh, to Corinth. And what happened at Athens? I think this is one of the most fascinating and amazing historical events. Here's a converted Jewish rabbi who was an enemy of Christ, and he ends up in Athens where the brilliant people of the world gathered to debate ideas, and there he gives essentially an apologetic for who God is, what he's done, why they should believe in him. That's a simple thing that we should know. So he had, I covered this, so let's just review. So the idea of a literal physical resurrection was absurd to both Epicureans and Stoics. Does anybody have an idea why that would seem absurd to them? They had different ideas, but go ahead. Well, it's no different than that being absurd to people today. That's true. Philosophically, yeah. uh, the resurrection of the body just really wasn't what they were looking for. There's a lot of people today who think that, well, your best life now, go for all the gusto. But these uh, philosophers had ideas that are not compatible with what Paul was preaching. And we've been talking a lot about a linear view of history. It begins with creation and is heading toward judgment. And that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the wicked, according to the Bible, not necessarily at the same time. And there will be a future judgment. That those who believe God and trust him, come to him on his terms, by his grace, are blessed and rewarded. Those who spurn the gospel and spurn Christ and won't listen, plug their ears when the truth is preached, will have to answer to God at that future day. Go ahead. Well, we were discussing a little bit this morning. Well, throughout history, you even had what were considered great theologians that didn't even believe in God. So if they didn't believe in God, they certainly didn't believe in the uh, resurrection. Absolutely, and we were talking that book about Bonhoeffer that I read as well. In Germany in the 19th century, which was the seat of brilliance and universities and learning, uh, theology was basically philosophy or vice versa. Philosophy didn't have to include theology, but it usually did. And so the, the philosophical underpinnings coming from I think Hegel, that's what I claimed in the book on Emergent, that everything's spiraling toward 
a better future, that God will not judge his own cosmos, um, and that there's a good end ultimately for everything, and there's no judgment. So a uh, German philosopher by the name, or German ex-soldier from World War II, Jürgen Moltmann promoted that idea. And I don't know how many of you know this, but I actually went to a conference um, where Moltmann was speaking when I was, after I published my book on Emergent, and they were lined up all the way around. This guy was their hero, World War II vet. Interesting story, he was captured. He fought for Hitler, was captured, ended up in England. When they let him go, he went to Germany. Before he was an atheist, now he was going to become some sort of a theist or Christian. Well, then he took German philosophy and a positive view of the future, and the emerging church latched onto his philosophy and his eschatology. And so the first chapter in my book, if I remember right, was about eschatology grounded in Jürgen Moltmann. But here's the thing that we need to ask ourselves and everyone. Has God spoken? Has God spoken clearly, authoritatively, in words that are meaningful to the hearers and to God? Earlier, before everybody got here, we were talking about Bart. Well, that's equivocation. God, God is so other than us, whatever he says, we have to take a blind leap of faith in order to get any meaning. But the answer to that is God has chosen the means by which he speaks. He speaks in real words in time and space that are meaningful. And yes, they're analogical use of language. But God chooses the analogy and what he means, he means. And I remember debating this and saying, okay, because it's denied by so many. When God says, thou shalt not steal, what's that mean? Does it mean something to God that we can't figure out? Or does it mean that it's a sin to steal? So that's how you deal with that. God has spoken. That's the first thing. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. God has spoken meaningfully. Uh, John 1, 1 through 18. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Elsewhere. God has spoken in these last days through his son, who is the creator of all things, through whom also he made the world. And this very creator through whom he spoke is coming again, and he is judge. The world isn't heading toward paradise. It's heading toward judgment. And then when we break it down even further, that's correct, further, farther. Farther is distance, further is more. Is that right? Then we, is there a future for ethnic national Israel? Yes or no? Yes. Just the providential things that happen would convince me that God exists and has spoken. You wouldn't believe the timing and the providence. A man that listens to our sermons and I've known for some years called me and said have you ever heard of this certain guy and he was a preterist who had become a premillennialist and that book was sitting there and I read part of it and then I get a call from a CIC reader who was in a Presbyterian church trying to see what they're going to do 
and said, well, what's, what is this? What's this all about? And so then here's that book. And here's another book I just found in my library. And it has the answers. God has actually made a promise to future national Israel. And God keeps his promises. Well, why would he do that? Because God cannot lie. Okay. And so this book, and I brought a show and tell, but we probably won't have time for it. was written by a guy who was an avid preterist or partial preterist. Eric, we have a pastor who studied. Tell us the difference between preterism and partial preterism. Yeah, um... R.C. Sproul, by the way, would be a good example of partial preterism. Preterists believe that the coming of the Lord happened in 70 A.D. And um, so there's no longer any future coming for the full preterist. The partial preterist, like R.C. Sproul, believes that there was a coming spiritually in 70 A.D., but there will be a bodily return of Christ at the end of time. Um, It's kind of... Partial preterists actually don't have a lot going for them because one of the reasons for it, just real quick, is in Revelation, remember the very beginning, it says these things must happen soon. R.C. Sproul will say, well, that means it had to happen within the lifetime of the apostles. This generation. This generation's another one. But the problem with that is the partial preterist like R.C. Sproul believes that the end of Revelation is about the future, but at the end of the book of Revelation, it says these things must happen soon. So do you see, if soon means it has to happen within the lifespan of the apostles, then the end of the book has to happen within the lifespan of the apostles. You can't have it both ways. And we've laid out many times that, no, these things happening soon is an imminent proposition. So when you're living in the last days as we are now, these things are imminent. It doesn't mean it has to happen within any certain time frame. Right. It's always at hand. So, but that's the difference. Partial preterist still believes the future coming. Full preterist, it all happened in 70 A.D. But then is there a resurrection for the full preterist? No, they would be... Um, yeah. That's heretical. It's heretical. It? Full yeah. preterism is heretical, I absolutely. Think so too. It's amazing what happens over a person's lifetime. I, I, one time I was asked to debate a partial preterist, and somehow we ended up in revel, on the binding of Satan, and he was bound for a period of time and then loosed. Well, they say well, he was bound way back when. And it was done from the work of the cross. Is that right? Yeah. And then I, I said, well, if the binding of Satan happened through the work of the cross and then he's unbound, uh, uh, Luo, Deo is bind, Luo is loose. When did God undo the work of the cross? I asked this preterist, partial preterist. He just went to another topic. He was a nice guy, but there's no answer. If the binding of Satan happened already, and then he's loose, that can't be what it's talking about in Revelation. Well, the thing that this book that I got with one day when the guy uh, asked me to order it, it comes, I open it up, and then I get phone calls. People ask me about the very thing. Now, um, amazing. You know what got him away from it? He had to think, well, why does Israel exist now? If, if God was done with Israel and that's it, it's meaningless. And we're not saying that national Israel now is the millennium or that they're right with God. But 
Romans 11 says that there's a future for ethnic national Israel. And there's no other way to interpret it. And then just read it. So if you ever have to answer that, go to Romans 11, read it. the word church in there if you go to Romans 10 1 if you put the word church in instead of Israel it doesn't make sense because you're praying for the for Israel to be saved versus well, the church so again you can't even substitute church if you try putting church in everywhere where it says Israel it doesn't make sense yeah I once preached a sermon on that where I went through Romans 11 or made a presentation and everywhere it said Israel it meant Israel and then when it gets down to Verse 11 on, all of a sudden it means something else. It says here, they were enemies for your sake. So if Israel means the church, and Israel's an enemy, so the church is an enemy of God. So anyhow, the phone call came, had it, talked to the CIC reader. Okay, I'll just go with that. I don't know what all these other terms mean. Is the church... If the church is defined in the Bible, those who are attached to the head, Jesus Christ, who are born of God, who believe in Messiah, who believe the promises of God, is the church the enemy of God? But Israel in its lost state is what Paul's talking about. There's a future. There's a change. And so that's where we're at on that. I better keep moving here. I've got to get, at least get to verse 1. So Paul went out from their midst. So here is Saul of Tarsus, uh, just rabid in his hatred, rabid in his hatred of Christians after hearing Stephen preach, converted. Now here, here he is, brilliant philosophers. And they had an unknown God. You know what unknown is in the Greek? It's where we get our word agnostic. Well, you could say, I don't know if there's a God. That's fair enough to say that. But you can't say, I know there is no God. Do you see what the difference is? Uh, I just debated somebody on that recently. If you say, I'm an atheist, well, then there is a God, it's you. Because the only way to know there's no God is to have absolute knowledge of everything and know, having observed everything in the whole universe from before the creation, if there ever was one, to the end, I've observed all that and I know there's no God. Well, you can't say that and they know they can't, so now they go to agnostic. Does that, you ever talk to somebody about that? Well, you can't really be an atheist. You can say, I don't know God, relationally, well, I don't know if there is a God. Well, then look at the evidence. So, look at this. So he went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom were Dionysius the Aerobagite. I still don't know how to pronounce that after two tries. And a woman named Damaris and others with him. There's no evidence that Luke implies Paul's preaching was a failure. Now, why would I say that? I have a very good reason for saying that. Because there were people uh, in the 70s and 80s who were saying that you can't use evidence and rationality and logic 
to convince anybody you have to do signs and wonders. Now that implies that we can do signs and wonders at will because we decide to do so. He didn't fail. Now I noticed when I studied this that some scholars thought that Paul failed and he had to try something different. But this Dionysius was likely a member of the Oropagus Council, which had about 30 members. So last week I was preaching about the hoi polloi and the uploi, the not many. But it's amazing what the salvation of one person in something like the Oropagus Council will end up doing to confront a whole lot of other people. Is that true? Uh, we've all seen that. And we need not be ashamed of the gospel. In fact, we cannot be ashamed of it. We need to be forthright. I've seen recently some people that suddenly are interested. Literally, I, I didn't think they would ever be. I've seen people that saw our service on local cable and started watching it. And they come to church. How's that? Wow, God's at work. That's all I can see. So let's get to our passage here. Oh, first we've got to have a map. I say this over and over. Real places, real people, real events, and real history. We didn't follow cleverly devised tales, they said, Paul said, when we proclaim to you these things. So you probably can't see that, but Athens, you can either go by sea or by land to get over to Corinth. So those are a couple possible routes that he took. Now we go on to Corinth. This is what we're going to cover today. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, is that believable? Yes. Why? Because this is an event that's recorded in history. It's not mythology. It's not just some idea. These are the sort of things that actually happen. Now, let me quote Dr. Schnabel on that. Roman sources report two edicts of Claudius affecting the Jewish community in the city of Rome. Cassius Dio reports with regard to the first year of Claudius's principate, A.D. 41, that the emperor commanded the Jews to adhere to their ancestral way of life and not to conduct meetings. Uh, and there's Greek here. This, messi- this edict seems to have been a reaction to the missionary activity of Jewish Christians, which had provoked disturbances in the synagogues. Now, that's what the rest of Acts is about as we go forward. How did Paul end up in Rome? Disturbances in synagogues. Ultimately, Jerusalem, Acts 21. So they already knew about this. The Romans knew about it. It's in history. This isn't a myth. This isn't a story to make us feel better. This is cold, sober truth. 
and it's given so that people would see the need to repent and turn to Christ and trust him. Let me read on. This, so this is a reaction, evidently, to the activity of Jewish Christians, which had provoked disturbances in the synagogues, prompting Jewish leaders to register complaints at the imperial court. In the second edict, edict AD 49, Claudius ordered the expulsion of the Jews from the city of Rome. So that's probably this event, 49. So now we have it nailed down to where it happened, why it happened, and when it happened. So we're learning. Let's go on. The Roman historian Suetonius related measures that Claudius had initiated against men of foreign birth who were mentioned in connection with the Jews who constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus. Crestus. It's a Latin way of referring to Christ. Okay? With the result that he expelled them from Rome. Now, this is from secular historian. The relationship, he says, between these two edicts has been described as an intensification of Claudius's restrictive Jewish policies. So, at the beginning, when Paul and the others were going to synagogues, preaching Christ, some believed, some started riots. That happened to Jesus in Nazareth, remember? In, in Luke 4. And then they go to the next city, and this was going on, and eventually they found out in Rome. There were Christians in Rome already, somehow. That's, see, that's how the church spreads. Not by creating massive institutions with gold-plated buildings, but God takes ordinary Christians and distributes them on the scene of history according to his providence. And when they know the gospel and love Christ and believe it, they start sharing, and some people will believe. Here's what's interesting. Let me, and I'll get to you, Norm. I have a, something I'm working on, and by God's grace, I really need to get a book written about this. It seems now that when, and you can listen to this, and you don't have to agree with me, but Paul went to synagogues because they had scriptures there, like the Bereans search of scripture. Some would believe, and they get kicked out of the synagogue. I've heard literally from people who did that in churches and got kicked out of churches. Now, if you don't see the irony, you should. And I heard that again and again and again over years. Well, I asked them to study the Bible. One young man said, well, we were doing a Bible study, and I want to teach Romans. They told me I couldn't do that. So they're studying something else. So what we have again, it's just mind-boggling, but it's true, and I don't know how to explain it more clearly. The big mission field is Christendom. Okay? And I don't, if Jesus said conquer, set up Christendom, force people to become Christians, otherwise kill them, did Jesus say that? No. So that's not his idea. Yes, no, I'm sorry. 
Um, I think it's helpful, at least for me, to realize that when the Romans talked about Jews, <clears throat> they did not necessarily separate Christians from Jews. Yeah, that's exactly they, right. They, they, Christians were kind of considered a subset of Judaism. Right. So they lumped them together. So You're exactly right, Norman. That's, that's what's going to help explain the rest of the book of Acts. Okay? And there's so much to learn, and I have to stay on track here, but they didn't know the difference. Why should they? See, what the emperor wants is peace in his empire. And so if the Jews are just, you know, don't make trouble, don't cause issues, we don't want to have to go in and deal with things. Well, that just changed radically, even at the cross. There were Jews and Romans there when Jesus was crucified. And then when the gospel starts spreading through the Roman Empire, there's trouble. And they don't want trouble. So we'll see that in rest of Acts. Very good point. How are the pagan Romans supposed to know the difference between a Jewish believer in Messiah who trusts him and Jews that are doing what they did as the traditions of their ancestors. Yes. Uh, Paul going into these synagogues and then having to leave one Rome and then he goes to, or Athens and then he goes to uh, uh, Corinth. And then he gets, so the spread. Berea, Thess- right. yeah, so the spread. Berea, Athens. Yeah, yeah. So the spread of the gospel uh, goes to your sermon of last week with that reversal. So it's it's not the wise; it's the unwise. It's not it's 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 uh, uh, not the uh, it's the foolish one, okay? And it's not the noble one. I think you mentioned an ignoble. Well, yeah, and I got, I have to owe some credit to uh, Kenneth Bailey for pointing it out. He has a work on Corinthians that I just bought that shows how these reversals, these chiasms work. But if anybody wants to discuss what I preached last week about that, and I think I mentioned that anything that's said in the Bible, somebody can turn it into works. Okay? Blessed are the poor. Wow, I want to be blessed. So I'm going to take an oath of poverty, quit my job, Join a monastery. Now I'm poor, so God has to bless me. That's not the point. The point is, the only true blessing comes to those who trust Jesus Christ and believe on him and believe his promises. Believe the truth about God. Uh, Ephesians 1.3. So, works is the default position. Uh, hey, we got, a, we're in, good, we got here so far. Let's look at the first one. Claudius was emperor, 41 to 54, and 49, this is the one mentioned here. So therefore, it's reasonable to conclude that Aquila and Priscilla were likely already Christians. That makes sense to me. Has anybody else heard anything other than that? That's what the scholarly sources think, and I think there's good evidence for it. And what we find out from the rest of the Paul's writings in the New Testament and Luke is that these are key people. They showed up in First Timothy, is that right, Harry? And sometimes Priscilla's called Prisca, 
but it's still the same person. So here's what I think happens, and I believe that the scriptures bear this out. All over the world, there are people who will respond to the gospel if they hear it and are called to turn to Christ. When they do, sometimes they're already in an evangelical church and everybody's excited about that if the church hasn't gone apostate. But wherever they may be, whether it's in Islam or Catholic Christendom, Lutheran Christendom, wherever it may be, when you turn to Christ and believe the truth and believe the Bible means what it says about God and Christ and history and everything else, you don't always find friends. In fact, you rarely do, wherever you are. So God has his people. We don't know who they are until we preach. Now, thanks to God's providence and Zoom and all the things that are going on, which, of course, is not a good thing, but as far as the virus... I can't keep up with the people that are contacting me asking about the truth of Christ. I've seen so many people converted that I'll never see uh, in England in not because of me, because it's just out there. Get the truth out there. Some people will believe. Here's two that did. A husband and wife who came when this happened. They came to Corinth. I think I mentioned all the way back to the emperors, they wanted to make a canal through that little, see that narrow spot there? I didn't bring my pointer. They finally did that in the 19th century. It took a few uh, millennia or whatever. But now you can go through there, I believe. Yes, uh, Scott. I should know that. Okay. The point is, they finally, right here in the 19th century, they finally made a canal through there. So, they wanted to do it, but they couldn't get it done. And verse 2, he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, here we learn something about Paul, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade, they were tent makers. So, if you research that, Tents could be made either out of hides of animals or woven fabric. And there's discussion about that, but that's not hyper important for our study right here. And Paul talks about that elsewhere. In fact, let me read that, Acts 20, 33 to 35. If you want to turn that, let's turn to it. Let's all get a preview. Acts 20, 33 through 35. I'll read it. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive, unquote. That's, uh, 
Boy, I remember that was a trick question on the test in Bible college. Where did Jesus, where do you find the words of Jesus is more blessed to give than to receive? Luke, Matthew, oh, it's in Acts. It's not in the the other Gospels, or in the Gospels. But there it is. So does that mean if you work hard, you're in favor with God? No, it means that give no offense, Jew and agree to the church of God. If someone suggests you're just in it for the money, there's no work that's beneath us if it's valid, if it's godly, if it's not some wicked thing. Not a, a Ponzi scheme isn't from God. Right? You can't call that work. But uh, there's a lot of things like moving snow and whatever. So Saul of Tarsus, now Paul, had a trade he shared with his husband and wife. Verse 4. This is the one we want to really key in on. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Probably these are God-fearing Greeks who were there in the synagogue. They may refer to other Greeks, but they're not Jews. And so this is something that was his custom. Now look at that word reasoning, reasoning. Dialegomai. And so I did a search on that, and I found that it was used 13 times in the New Testament, 10 of which are in Acts. Anybody want to comment while I'm looking to see if I can find my printout for that? Now we'll continue. I have a point to make about it, and that is... I'll just go on. I have too many papers. Yes. Figured out that... uh, Corinth is certainly, uh, it's just a southern, big big island on the south side of of uh, Greece there. Modern or Greece. It's part of Greece, really. I, th- I, th- I think that's true. Yep, that's right. Thank you. So why is this even important reasoning? Well, this is how we have to refute the mystical uh, spiritual evolution. Languages are uncertain. We can't know what anything means. All we have is an existential experience. And if it's good, if it's pleasant, it must be from God. There are so many who rejected reason, logic, objectivity, and how we know what we know. And a whole generation of people grew up thinking that reality is a state of mind. And you see that in our culture. Well, that's your truth. I have my truth. Now, think about that. If truth is not objective, but it's relative to whoever holds it, how does anyone know the truth? What does it mean when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but by me. Somebody says, well, that's your truth. Well, no, it's objective truth. We either believe it or we do not. Jesus isn't the spirit Christ. He isn't the Christ of Hare Krishna or the Christ of some other Eastern version of religion. He is the only 
Haras road to God, to the Father. He's the eternal God who existed from all eternity as God and with God and came into our world. That's the claim. Yes, Brian. There's no absolute. That's what they don't believe. Well, you can believe what you want, but I'll tell you what's absolute. There will indeed be a future judgment. And everyone will give an account to God. The people that are saying that there's inevitable progress, I brought some show and tell. I, I finally found some books that I still had that I thought I'd lost. Uh, could you find that one I showed you earlier, Brian, from Schlossberg, Idols for Destruction? No, it's in the other bag here. I found some of my old books, and I found out that when I first got out of mystical Christianity that I was in for a few years when I was a charismatic, um, not that everybody charismatic believes that, this book helped me get out of it. Idols for Destruction, Herbert Schlossberg, Christian Faith, and its con Confrontation with American Society, 1983. But it was still some of the same issues. And when Paul wrote to Titus, one of their own poets said, the Cretans are lazy gluttons. Is that the best way to say that? Which testimony is true. That doesn't make Paul a bigot. But what he's saying is this. Yes, that's what they tend to do on the island of Crete. But he's talking to Christians there. So reprove them that they might be sound in the faith. Here's the point. Whatever culture you live in, the tendency is for the sins of the culture to come into the church. That's right. And so in 83, I was reading that, and I thought, wow, isn't that exactly what's going on? Well, then things go around and something else happens. Whatever the sins of the culture are, they want to come into the church. Okay? Whatever it is. So I think the best answer is to find the church, define the church biblically, not as an institution, not as brick and mortar, not as a self-perpetuating thing that if you just keep your children in it no matter what, then the church a few generations later will still be the church. No, it doesn't work that way. What did I say last week? There are no big fish, only dead sinners. That doesn't mean God doesn't save someone who had notoriety in society. It means that nobody brought anything to the table, whoever they are. And so the culture always wants to come in. And we think of coming into a building. We need to think of coming in and affecting the teaching that we are giving that is authoritative and from the Bible. Yes. Hey, man. Um, I was thinking about this idea of reasoning here. Paul's using rational thought and yes. argument from the scriptures to persuade people to come to Christ. Yes. In, in the yes. book of Jude, in Jude 10, it, it refers to those who won't abide by the scriptures as unreasoning beasts. Right. And I was thinking about our own culture, what's at stake, and Bob has addressed this for years, is we as evangelicals have always understood truth and the central thesis of truth to be governed by what we call the correspondence theory of truth. And what that means is something is true if it corresponds to reality. 
So if I make a statement, a propositional statement, I say there's $5 in my pocket, and you open up my pocket and there's $5 in there, that statement was true because it corresponded to reality. That has been jettisoned by this culture in the postmodern age, particularly the Marxist on the left, and they have become like unreasoning beasts. And what they do is they say something is true if we all agree upon it. So do you see the problem is if everyone in this room believes that I have $5 in my pocket, that doesn't make it so. What makes it so is if you open up my pocket and there's $5 in it. And so they've become like unreasoning beasts. And what Bob did for me, and I know for so many others in the evangelical world in the 2000s, is he kicked the intellectual door down. I remember, Bob, you were at Northwestern College. Was it John 12:48? John 12:48. I'll never forget it. It hit me like a lightning bolt. You have this generation saying we can't know God through language. And here it's being taught in the seminaries, and Bob says, well, what about John 12, 48? Go ahead and look that up, somebody. Yeah, I think I remember it fairly well, where Jesus says, this is that which will judge you on the last day, the very words I have spoken. So if we can't reason and know God through his word, then why did Jesus say what he said? And so what Bob did is he bound people to say, now you're disagreeing with Jesus. So you're either going to go with Immanuel Kant, who said you can't know truth, you're going to go with Christ. It's either Christ or it's Kant. It's either Christ or it's Hegel. It's either Christ or it's Marx. That's what it is. And if you're going to follow Christ, you'll be reasoning. And if you're going to follow Karl Marx, you're going to be an unreasoning beast. That's really what's at stake. Thank you for, for remembering that. You know, that's a key passage. If we can't know what Christ said, whatever he did say means everything to anybody, well, what's the basis for judgment on the last day? I was a good person. No, there's no good, no one good, no, not one. I was redeemed as an unworthy sinner who brought nothing to the table, nothing to offer, and God had mercy on me. I did not deserve it, nor do I deserve it today. But God is a merciful God who provides salvation through his son to those who believe in him. And what he says is binding on church. Yes, Dana. Can I just say something real quick? I don't want to chase oh, rabbits. I, okay, go ahead. But Marxism, as you just said, seems to be coming into the church through, well, it, it through social did. justice, the, the social gospel. This is a segue in what you're talking about. I just heard that a local, a big, very prominent church is kind of going down that path. I don't want to mention it to get up. Well, the point is... That happened a long time ago, and when I wrote a book about it, the emergent churches weren't, weren't even embarrassed. The people that I met were saying they had Neo-Galian followers of Moltmann. What Moltmann added was a trinity. Going back to the Old Testament in, in Isaiah 1.18. Yay, it's on my nose. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. And that was the foundation from which the New Testament writers operated, was reasoning. Amen. I finally found my notes, and that was the first one. Thank you. I actually looked it up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and guess what word is used? Same word. Isaiah 118. If you want to turn to it. This isn't a new idea. Come and let us reason together. And so I, 
now discovered how to look up the Greek words in the Old Testament too, with logos. And that's exactly the word, the Septuagint of Isaiah 1.18. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, what does that mean? Who can turn a wicked sinner facing judgment, defiled by sin, having no hope, failing the covenant? Who can change that? Only God. Isaiah 1.18, remember that. I had looked that up, so thank you, Dana. Fantastic reading. And uh, we find that more often in Acts than anywhere else, you want to jot a few of these down on if you had a notes here to write on. Acts 17.2 Acts 17.2 the same word for uh, reasoning that was used earlier in Acts 17.2 and it said as and according to Paul's custom he went to them and for three Sabbath reasoned with them from the scriptures. What scriptures did they have in synagogue? Tanakh. What's one of them? Isaiah 1.18. Same words there. See, when Paul and the others appointed by Christ to preach the truth, they were God's spokespersons, whoever said it. And if you don't listen to it, God is telling you, though your sins are scarlet, to be white as snow. How can it happen? Through Messiah. Stephen, read Acts 7. Stephen. Paul heard that. Listen, uh, this is so important. Saul of Tarsus was there when Stephen preached from the scriptures, proving the very things that Paul eventually believed. Is that right? He's holding their clothes. Stone that guy. He's Acts 9 breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He was enraged. He was on a jihad or a a mission to get rid of the wicked people, the ones that believe in Jesus. But God had different ideas. Confronted him, stopped him in his tracks. Ananias didn't want to pray for him. Not the bad on it, it's the good one. But the Lord said, no, this is one of mine. Remember, he'd been blinded. Ananias didn't even want to pray for him. God can't save somebody like that. Yes, he can. So, Acts 17, 2, he reasoned from scriptures. Where were the scriptures? Right there. It's ironic, probably the number one email I've received in the last 25, 30 years is people getting kicked out of their church for wanting the word of God taught. I've heard that more than anything else since the 1990s. Well, why can't I teach the word of God in church? Well, you don't understand. We're trying to reach seekers. Well, what are they seeking? Did I tell you the story of the couple who were pleading with the pastor to be able to pass out gospel tracts 
in the parking lot. That one was stunning. The guy said, he was, I think, from the Canada, but he sent me a audio back then. They had to be pretty short. And you know what happened? They had a classic car show, which is, I have nothing against classic cars. I like them. And so the guy says, and his wife said, well, we want to pass out gospel tracts during our outreach event. You can't do that. We're trying to reach seekers. Okay, what about if they come to church? Can I give them a gospel tract then? No. And it's just shocking. The wife is crying. The man is saying, but we want to tell people about Christ. Isn't that why we're doing this? That doesn't fit with our vision for the church. Another equivocation. When the Bible says vision, what does it mean? They'd say, without a vision, the people perish. That means if we don't know why our organization's here and how it's going to grow and buy more brick and mortar and have more influence and be bigger and more prosperous, then we don't have a vision. That's equivocation. It's vision used in a business sense when the Bible uses it in a sense that God has spoken. The vision is what God gave to his apostles and prophets in the old, the prophets, Moses and the prophets in the old, apostles, New Testament writers. That's the vision. It doesn't change. The fact that people don't like it, that's never changed. And so I, all I can see is that the church needs to be defined biblically. Organizations come and go, and the church is still those who are attached to the head, who know Christ, whose sins that were scarlet are now white as snow, and the truth is believed. God changes people. They are hungry. I've told people who have asked me about this, if you really want God's church to grow, preach the truth right from Scripture. No preacher is infallible, but the Scripture means what it says. If somebody can read it and understand it and show that I missed something, which happened many times, then I have a chance to learn. But if it's right, if we get it right, God will use it. And people will be saved, and the saints will grow, and God will sanctify people. Acts 72 is reasoning. Acts um, Acts 17, 17. He was reasoning in a synagogue with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles. Our passage here, Acts 18, 4. He was reasoning in a synagogue. So who's telling us reason is an enemy of the gospel? That's absurd. It's so absurd, it's just shameful, frankly. I'm thinking of um, the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. So we don't just blindly, you know, we use our minds to understand God's word. Um, it's part of reasoning, too. Yeah, love. Right? Yeah, see, that's another equivocation that's common. You're right. It means the whole being. But a lot of people say, well, I love God, but they won't define who God is. So who is it you love? God as you understand him? 
Can you, de can you define reasoning versus like arguing and when you would stop and not call it reasoning anymore? Okay, the word actually has that same range of meaning, discussing in a sense of, here's the facts, is it true? I have a whole, maybe next week, if you, I'll let you decide. I would like to go back over Berea. Because last week, remember, we looked at nobility. And the one thing they can do would be noble-minded and search the scriptures. In Acts um, 17, 11, and 12. So that's a good question. It's not wrong to reason. It's not wrong to debate, but we have to have an objective way to determine what the truth is. And having power to force people to do things your way doesn't make truth. Having a romantic feeling doesn't make love for God. It, what really matters is that, as you quoted, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. One person objected to me teaching this, and I got an email. So why isn't the law of Christ to love God? Well, that's certainly the key thing. But then, now here's the kicker. What do you mean by loving God? Or some say, well, all the law summed up love the Lord, which is true. But therefore, there's no rules, there's no binding and loosing, Everything that we say is love must be love. So without definitions, everything gets confused. Everything. Yes, uh, Eric. There's a lot of Eric's, the one with his hand up. And then when we talk about love, in Greek, you know, you've got agape, and you got filio and all that. A lot of people now, we think of love as our feelings in our hearts, just our warm, fuzzy feelings. But uh, Jesus commanded us to be his bondservants. That's, that's the Hebrew concept. It's not just mental assent. You don't just have mental assent. You, you act on it. And that means serving. It's, it's a selfless love. That's what people lose. They well, lose sight of that, I think. Right, but even that has to be defined. Let me explain. When I researched about the emergent church, and it took a long time, I debated one fellow who was a main proponent of it. What they said is, how you find the kingdom is you look around and see what God is doing, and you join it. <laughs> well, how do we know what God is doing? Where people are doing good deeds. Well, I'm, I'm not in favor of doing bad deeds. Right. Yeah. And we're definitely in favor of being kind, being good neighbors. There's such things as common grace, how we treat people. But what makes that the kingdom? Because you don't have to be born again to be a nice neighbor, even though it's a good idea. Right. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I love Jesus, but don't let me. If you tell me who Jesus is, I'm going to get angry. So... Well, we believe in the... Have you heard of the red letter, Christian? Oh, I like red letters, too. I like especially the ones where he talks about hell and future judgment. Well, we don't like those red letters. 
Those are bad red letters in theory. You know, I was just going to address that reasoning question. Um, what kind of reasoning should we do? Is it argument? Is it contentious? What does it look like? And I think Second Timothy two twenty four through twenty five gives us some hints into it. Good passage. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where the uh, it says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance. And so I think the idea is that we always present the truth in love so we can contend without being contentious and um, and necessarily angry. And that might even mean that we're in a fierce debate, but we can still be loving while we hold to the truth. And uh, one of the past, this is convicting to me because I'm competitive by nature. And I remember one time I was at the workout club and I just about had enough with this one particular atheist and I, then I had to do radio with Bob later on. We were doing radio together at Critical Issues Commentary. And Bob had mentioned the passage in James where he said, The wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. And it hit me like a lightning bolt. Bob was continuing on with the message, and I felt convicted for like five minutes. <laughs> Couldn't even say anything. But the point is, my adding anger to the dialogue doesn't add one ounce of truth to the argument. And so that's why we're just to give the truth in love. And obviously, at the end of the day, God is the one who grants repentance anyway. So we're just beating our head against the wall if we think that our anger is somehow going to make it more forceful, the truth. We just present the truth and let God deal with the sinner. Well, the, what actually convicts people is the Holy Spirit using the gospel Amen. to convict of sin. I know that verse is, I haven't mastered that by any means. But it helps you when you're driving. <laughs> the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And we need the fruit of the Spirit. But we don't want to retreat from the truth of the gospel because people don't like it. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the opportunity to search the scriptures, to understand to help one another, encourage one another, to love on good works, to see what you've said. And Lord, may we better understand the gospel that you've given to us to believe and to trust. And we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die for sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today upstairs, Harry's going to introduce us to the gospel of Matthew. I'm excited. <laughs>